Greetings, I'm Will Tompkins, and this is the Narrow Way Podcast. This series of episodes is our study of John Bunyan's timeless book, The Pilgrim's Progress, Part 2, Christiana's Story. Links to our source text will be found in the description field of the first episode in this series. In this episode, we'll be taking a closer look at the character of Gatekeeper before proceeding to the Devil's Garden. But before we begin, a moment of prayer. O Heavenly Father, grateful are we for your presence here with us, and grateful are we for the indwelling Spirit to whom we may turn for guidance at each of life's crossroads. And let us do so, Father, so that we may choose the righteous path, the ancient one. And grant us, O Father, the wisdom to discern your truth and then the courage to act upon it. May your promises be the safe and sure steps across our own slough of despond. And may we transcend our worldly trials and look to the light that illuminates our path. All glory and honor to you, Father God. In Jesus' name, amen. And now a closer look at the gatekeeper, also known as the keeper and goodwill. There is no more important Bunyan character in all of Pilgrim's Progress. No, not one. He is the cornerstone who assures us that even with all that we have done up to that point, we will in no wise be cast out. In part one, he is referred to as goodwill, while in this, the second part, he's referred to variously as the man at the gate, or the man that stands at the gate, or the keeper of the gate, or just the keeper. So who is he, this keeper? Well, he's not a mere man, as is evangelist, but rather, as commentator Bain wrote, he is a man, but only allegorically such, and about him there is no hint of weakness, nor of sin. He is, like the interpreter to follow, a superhuman. The divine is there, he writes, lurking obscurely but unmistakably within the human. Unquote. He warmly welcomes all those who have made up their minds to go on pilgrimage. In Luke 2.14 we read, Glory to God in the highest and on earth peace and goodwill toward men. From John 10, 1, 3, Truly, truly, I say to you, he who does not enter the sheepfold by the door, but climbs in by another way, that man is a thief and a robber. But he who enters by the door is the shepherd of the sheep, and to him the gatekeeper open. And in John 10, 9 through 10, I am the gate. If anyone enters by me, he will be saved and will go in and out and find pasture. The thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. 
But then there's this in Matthew 7, 21, 23. Not everyone that saith unto me, Lord, Lord, shall enter the kingdom of heaven, but he that doeth the will of my Father who is in heaven. Many will say to me in that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in thy name, and by thy name cast out demons, and by thy name do many mighty works? And then will I profess unto them, I never knew you. Depart from me, ye that work iniquity. Of this gatekeeper, White tells us that he was often seen in tears and that no one had ever seen or heard him laugh. In Isaiah 53.3, he is called a man of sorrows who had come into this world on a very sad mission. Laughter would have been near impossible for him. And loved ones, if we long reflect on the ever-growing tragedy of sin in this world, how would we be able to laugh? So the keeper was a grave and serious man with a commanding countenance. But as anyone could see as they came up the way, he had good reason to be as he is described. For as White writes, the sight and situation of the gate, for one thing, was of itself enough to banish all light-mindedness from the man who was stationed there. For the gatehouse stood just above the slough of despond, and that itself filled the air of the place with a dampness and a depression that could be felt. And then out of the downward windows of the gate, the watcher's eye always fell on the city of destruction in the distance and on her sister cities sitting like daughters round about her. And that also made mirth and hilarity impossible at the gate. And then the kind of characters who came knocking all hours of the day and night at the gate. Goodwill never saw a happy face or heard a cheerful voice from one year's end to the other. And if you were overconfident when you arrived at the gate, Goodwill's questioning would soon set you right. Many, however, arrive at the gate already sinking in their own slough of despond, terrified of their prospects, desperately afraid of their outcome. As one commentator writes, they would often fall before the threshold more dead than alive. And then, after pulling a pilgrim through the gate, sometimes quite forcefully in order to spare them the arrows from Beelzebub's castle, they would collapse with, as Mercy said, scarce life left in me. But that gate through which they had come left the gatekeeper with but one option to offer them, that being the narrow way, a path of trials and tribulations, battles and brawls, darkness and demons, and unimaginable enemies, not the least of which was the river of death. White describes it like this. In the end, even with all he had done, their ignorance of the way on which he could only start them, the multitudes who started and the handfuls who held on, the many who for a time ran well, but afterwards left their bones to bleach by the wayside, and all the impossible to be told troubles and dangers and sorrows and shipwrecks 
that certainly lay before the most steadfast and single-hearted pilgrim. All that was more than enough to give the man at the gate his grave and anxious aspect. Nevertheless, grateful is goodwill for the work his father has given him, and he rejoices in it. But he will not have more happiness until he follows the last pilgrim into the city. Amen. And we should note that goodwill has an ever-expanding heart filled with tender encouragement and invitation. Later in the study, you will meet a character named Mr. Fearing, who had come to the gate but could only manage a small rap or two upon the door. And although it was answered almost immediately, when the keeper emerged, Mr. Fearing had already shrunk away. So the keeper stepped out after him, saying, Come in, for thou art blessed. Now recall when Christian arrived at the gate. Goodwill wanted to know why he had arrived alone. Had he no traveling companions? And what about his family? Indeed, he asked Christian, Is the celestial glory of so little value that it's not worth the trials to obtain it? Goodwill listened to Christian with kindness and patience, characteristics that influenced him throughout his walk. In other words, goodwill exuded goodwill. Yet he must tell Christian, indeed all pilgrims, the truth, that the way to the celestial city is, in fact, narrow, and that, as White writes, it becomes more and more narrow until it strips a man bare and sometimes threatens to close upon him and crush him to the earth altogether. Even still, loved ones, we must continue to strive, strive to enter the narrow gate, and then continue to strive as we navigate that narrow way. White asks, speaking to us, his readers, have you then anything in your religious life that Christ will at last accept as the striving he intended and demanded? Does your religion cause you any real effort, that which Christ calls agony? And he continues with, What cross do you every day take up? In what thing do you every day deny yourself? Name it. Put your finger on it. Write it in cipher on the margin of your Bible. Would the most liberal judgment be able to say of you that you have any fear and trembling in the work of your salvation? The lesson here, loved ones, as we have mentioned before, is this. Salvation is a journey, a journey along the narrow way. It is not simply a decision. And of this, as the scripture makes clear, you can be sure. And thus, as Bain tells us, goodwill, the gatekeeper, says to pilgrims, come and I will teach thee about the way thou must go. Look before thee, dost thou see that narrow way? That is the way thou must go. And then thou mayest always distinguish the right way from the wrong. For the wrong is crooked and wide, and the right is straight as a rule can make it, straight and narrow. So, loved ones, remember the effort at the gate, the knocking, and then the knocking again and again 
even louder than the one before. This is the one who is inheriting the promises. The knocking is prayer and symbolizes what Paul referred to in Ephesians 6, 17, 18, when he exhorted us to take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God, praying always with all prayer and supplication in the Spirit, being watchful to this end with all perseverance and supplication for all the saints. In other words, continue to strive always. And finally, remember this also. Goodwill said, we make no objections against any, notwithstanding all that they have done before they come hither. They are in no wise cast out. Oh, what a glorious Savior we serve. Amen. Now let's move on to the devil's garden. As Christiana, Mercy, and the four boys leave the gate, there is a moment of great joy during which Christiana sings, Blessed be the day that I began, a pilgrim for to be, and blessed also be that man that thereto moved me. Tis true, t'was long ere I began to seek to live forever, but now I run fast as I can, tis better late than never. Our tears to joy, our fears to faith, are turned as we see, thus our beginning as one saith, shows what our end will be. But that joyful moment is short-lived, isn't it? And why? Because Christiana overlooked the reality of further danger ahead and thus failed to ask for God's help. So as they set out on their journey along the King's Highway, they noticed a high wall running along their path. And on the other side of that wall was a garden with fruit trees and the branches of those trees hung quite far over the wall, dropping their fruit on the ground along the narrow way. This fruit was a temptation that the four boys could not resist, and so they ate of it, even after their mother had said to them, Well, my sons, you transgress, for that fruit is none of ours. And we'll later discover it was Matthew that ate the most. Little did Christiana know that this fruit belonged to the enemy, for if she had, she would have been terrified. For you will, of course, remember, loved ones, that there is nothing ever good on the other side of the narrow way. Now that garden is owned by the same evil one, Beelzebub, who owned and owns that wretched dog which greeted them at the gate. And of this garden, writes Mason, what is this garden but the world, which I should remind you is also represented by the city of destruction and vanity fair? And the fruit? It represents what we read in 1 John 2.16, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eye, and the pride of life. Now at this point in their journey, being women alone, they become fearful of two very ill-favored ones coming directly towards them. These ill-favored ones come close enough to embrace them and begin to lay hands upon them. Christiana raises her voice and exhorts, Stand back or go peaceably by as you should. She tells them, We have no money, but they don't want their money. They just have one request. And with that request, and I quote, we will make women of you forever. 
But Christiana stands her ground, telling them, We will neither hear nor regard nor yield to what you shall ask. And with that, they again attempt to go past them. And the ill-favored ones tell her, We intend no hurt to your lives. Tis another thing we would have. Christiana answers, You would have us body and soul. But she says, We would rather die on this very spot rather than suffer ourselves to be brought into such snares as shall hazard our well-being hereafter. Then Christiana and Mercy cry out, Murder! Murder! And so put themselves under those laws that are provided for the protection of women. In Deuteronomy 22, 23-27. And here I would pause and urge you to read the New King James Version of this scripture, which makes the intent quite clear. Again, if you want to make a note of it, it's Deuteronomy 22, 23-27. But then the men continue, intent on their despicable goal. Now, not being that far from the gate, Christiana's voice was heard and recognized, and so they came quickly to their aid. And who arrives but a new character? The reliever. Now, upon confronting the ill-favored ones, the reliever says, What is that thing that you do? Would you make my Lord's people to transgress? And as he attempted to apprehend them, they escaped back over the wall and into the garden of the evil one who owns the dog. And the reliever says to Christiana that he marveled that while at the gate she did not petition the keeper for a conductor, for surely he would have provided one, and thus she would have avoided these dangers. Alas, she says, they were feeling so blessed they forgot about the dangers that lie ahead that so near the king's palace there should have lurked such naughty ones. But then she asks, since the Lord of the place knew it would be to our benefit, why didn't he just send one along? And in response, the reliever says, it is not always necessary to grant things not asked for, lest by so doing they become of little esteem. And how do we ask for these things? Well, by prayer and supplication, asking or begging for something earnestly and humbly. He reminds her that had she been granted a conductor without her request, she wouldn't have had the opportunity to bemoan her own bad choice. This reminds us, loved ones, that there is a large measure of responsibility placed on our shoulders as pilgrims. We must take up our cross and do the work. Pray always, but put your hands to the plow and do your part and do it well. Christiana asks if they should return to the gate, confess their folly, and ask for a conductor. But the reliever says he will do so in her stead, and so they do not need to return. As for all the places where they shall come, he says, you will find no want at all, for in every one of my Lord's lodgings, which he has prepared for the reception of his pilgrims, there is sufficient to furnish them against all attempts whatsoever. Mercy said she thought they were past all danger and that they would never see sorrow any more. But noting Mercy's innocency, which may excuse her, Christiana takes all the blame because she knew perfectly well 
there could be danger, and she did not provide for it. And so she accepts full responsibility for their plight. Now, Mercy wants to know how Christiana knew there would likely be trouble. So Christiana tells her of her dream about the two men who stood at the foot of her bed, wondering what to do with her, for she was crying out for forgiveness, and they didn't want to lose her as they did her husband. And those two men were the ones that turned out to be the ill-favored ones. And thus Satan's minions ply their evil ways. Then Mercy offers these words of encouragement. Well, said Mercy, as by this neglect we have an occasion ministered unto us to behold our own imperfections. So our Lord has taken occasion thereby to make manifest the riches of his grace. For he, as we see, has followed us with unasked kindness and has delivered us from their hands that were stronger than we, and did so of his mere good pleasure. Now, as this episode draws to a close, I want to add a bit more on the character of the reliever. Now, the reliever is a class of Bunyan characters known as helpers, human helpers. And also in this group are other noble characters like evangelist. And in our current use of the language, he would probably have been named the rescuer. And as we've read in the text, this man, the rescuer, discharges his helpful service with a good deal of vigor and delicacy. He is, as Bain writes, a Christian knight in his way, prompt and bold, but not without tenderness and wise besides. And now a summary of the reliever from commentator Bain. What one wretch of a dog failed to stop, two sauntering villains may seek to spoil. But the Christward appeal of those to whom it is all assault rather than temptation, and who are waging what battle they can with the miscreant assailants, will never fail to fetch deliverance to their side. Yet the articulate humanness of this relieving one, as we see and hear him, a humanness which adapts itself so wisely to the exact requirements of the case is sufficient to remind us that even this spiritual relief may come through the church of living men and that it may be carried to the spot of conflict by the pure heart and sanctified lips of a servant of the King. Amen. Well, loved ones, as we come to the end of yet another episode, let us pray that the Spirit might lead us in our striving. Grateful are we for your presence here with us, Father God. Grant us the strength, the perseverance, and the courage to strive, and to strive even in the face of the ever-mounting and what oft-times seems insurmountable darkness in this world. For we know, Father, we can do all things through our Christ who strengthens us. It's in his name we pray. Amen. In our next episode, we'll cover the house of the interpreter. Until then, loved ones, may the comforter be with you always to guide you in the way that leads to the city. 